Welcome to the Do Divorce Right podcast. I'm your host, Becca Maxwell, and I'm here to help you transition through your divorce with ease and integrity, to not only survive the challenges of your divorce, but to thrive as you come out the other side of it with a much better life than you ever hoped possible. On this show, we talk about many different aspects of divorce, interview women who have their own incredible divorce stories, or those who can offer some great advice as you go through yours. The focus here is to help you find the strength and support to help you feel lighter, happier, more positive, and in a better frame of mind to face the inevitable challenges of your current journey. Okay, I'm really excited. Today, I'm talking to Lasana Eriks. Lasana is a conflict resolution specialist. She's a mediator. She has been not even nominated, awarded Family Dispute Resolution Practitioner of the Year um, for 2020, right? And before that, there's nominations of finalists, Australian Law Awards, Australasian Law Awards, etc. So you're quite well accomplished, Lasana. Thank Um, you. (laughs) um, I'd love to know, so what percentage of the work that you do is dealing with family law mediation and conflict resolution with families and what percentage is corporate? Um, It's a bit hard to tell because every week is a little bit different. But I would say in general, family mediation is, um, it's more than than 50%. So I do more family work than I do corporate work. It just, like I said, some weeks I have, um, and, and, you know, I've had like sometimes a six-month contract with a company or, you know, but these are normally, normally I would mediate with families every week. So the exact percentage I I can't really give you. Um, but let's but just say I do it every family. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, Gosh, it's that's more corporate as well. So, but uh, it's both. But for yeah. mediations, more family mediations than workplace. Um, but I do a lot of corporate training. Got it. Well, I think there's oodles that our listeners are going to get out of this conversation. So I'm excited. I've prepped a couple of questions for you, um, but I'm sure that we're going to get more as well. Um. So given your experience specifically helping separating and divorcing couples and families, how would you describe the behaviours of people going into that that achieve the greatest success? Now, I totally understand success is super subjective, especially in this Yeah, space what is that? Where, yeah, nobody walks away thinking, yay, I won. <laughs> but, um, yeah, what, what would you say are the behaviours that are leading to the best outcomes perhaps? Um, I think behaviours about that are, you know, reflective capacity, I guess, as I call it, because sometimes we all don't behave that well. You know what I mean? I'm a human being, so are you. And I, I, I sometimes do things and I'm like, well, I could have handled that better. Um, yeah. And I think when people are really defensive and they can't take any responsibility and it's all the other person's fault, um, that normally doesn't really help conversations. It doesn't mean that you can't bring up and make requests of another person and say, hey, can we do it this way? Because I don't think that works. But if everything comes from a blaming kind of point of view and it's all the other person's fault and you haven't done anything, you are an angel, nothing has ever, you know what I mean? It's never been your fault. Um, that doesn't work. How I explain it to my clients, I say, you know, I know that a lot of people have a um, not so great relationship with the word responsibility because they feel that it means they're at fault and they're to blame or, you know, we do it with kids. It's like, you know, who, whose responsibility is it? Things like that. But when you really take responsibility, obviously it gives you power to change a situation. And I think that's the main thing that I talk to my clients about. One of the main things is like, then you can go, okay, because otherwise if you are going to say, 
the other person is to blame. They have to change things for the for this to get better. Then obviously they have all the power. And if they decide they're never going to change, then you are now stuck. So being able to be reflective and and a reflection doesn't have to be that you're a doormat. It can also mean that you say, well, I haven't been honest with you for a long time and you've been crossing my boundaries and that you don't even know because I didn't tell you or whatever it may look like. So I think that is a really important one. Um, And the other one is really the child focus. And it's a really difficult one. um, But I think for a lot of people, I had some beautiful clients, clients this morning and they were both like, well, we're not going to share Christmas because the kids would hate it and they both agree with it. Not that I say people shouldn't share Christmas, but one of the parties used to be a kid and was carted around on Christmas. He said, it's horrible. And I'm not saying people shouldn't share kids with Christmas, but it was really beautiful that both of them didn't think of their own needs because obviously as a parent, they both really wanted to see their kids on Christmas Day, but they were both like, listen, it's just not going to be pleasant for anyone involved and I don't think the kids will like it. So um and it's a really hard thing to do because we all have needs too but if you can really separate your needs from your kids needs um then I think the conversations are easier as well for sure just on that first point then about reflective capacity I love that um do you have any specific techniques that help put your clients into that space of reflection or building empathy that kind of um yeah I think one of the things we have an intake session in mediation so you have a one-on-one with me first or uh, and then we do um then we kind of um do the joint session so in the intake session I guess one of the things I start asking is like what has it been like for the other parent and you know how do they think they feel about it and are they a good parent or and, and I think along the conversation a lot of, because often people come to me and they're like and this happened and that's happened and People are angry and frustrated or sad or whatever the situation might be, but often the, the emotions run really high. Um, sure. And it's sure. then to really get that because also I have to make sure that I show empathy for that client because they obviously are really going through that. So it's not invalidating their feelings, but, you know, kind of slowly but surely starting to go, so what is it like for the other parents? So if you're not working with someone and you're doing this for yourself, you could ask yourself those questions. What 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 do you think it would be like for the other parent? Often I think people think that the other parent is having a good old time and they're not mm-hmm. suffering at all and you're the only one in pain. And 99% of the time, you know, I think the other person is in pain. Even if they make the decision to separate, they are also Absolutely. going through turmoil. They are also, their life is also upside down. So I think if you can start thinking about, you know, what would it be like to be them? Or what would be what would it be like to have to deal with me? Right. <laughs> that's a great one. Yeah. yeah. So so if you ask yourself these questions, then I think that's really helpful. That is. Yeah, I do find it really challenging to build that empathy with somebody else, you know, when you're going through this. I find it hard for my clients to create that empathy. Mm-hmm. And I do have a couple of techniques, but it's not always the most useful um, useful use of our time because I want them to focus on, focus on their own emotional resilience, their own, um, you know, yeah. building of that resilience. So, yeah, we don't often get into that space of empathy, but I also try to shut down any ex-bashing. It's just so unproductive. You know, any energy that you put out there that's against another party is actually just putting negative energy out there. It's just surrounding yourself with it. So I try and calm that down as much as we can because it's really unproductive. Yeah, um, but I also find that, that from, for, you know, and I think our jobs are a little bit different, but if for me it's also if I let a client actually express it all at least once and I really listen to it, 
then sometimes it also disappears because I think people often just never feel heard by anyone and they're feeling yeah. like no one is getting their point of view. So I guess if you can get someone else's point of view when it's also when you're working with them um, as or even if they're dealing with, if you are listening and you're dealing with your ex, if you really listen to them and get their point of view, I bet that afterwards they're much more willing to listen to you. So so I kind of, that's one of the things I do with clients. They can really tell the porter heart out and it's okay how they feel. And then now what, right? Yes, and and, exactly. and, the be- and the beauty of mediation is when you get to agreement, sometimes it depends how raw things are and depends how emotional things are. Sometimes in the beginning, I can only do like short-term things and just easy solution and problem solving and you're not digging too deep and because things just have to calm down. Like one of the things that I see a lot of people who are just recently separated you know everything gets thrown at them and what are you going to do with your financial separation and what are you going to do with the kids and everyone's like whoa so often I say to my clients don't worry about that let's put an agreement in place for like at the moment for example until after Christmas until January until the school year starts let's just deal with that all the things we can deal with the interim finance stuff not the long-term stuff just for now so everyone knows what they're doing nothing is final everyone can just calm down you don't have to communicate every day there's no rush there yeah. is no rush, but things have to be organized. If you have nothing in place and the phone calls and the negotiation and everything, and before you know it, sometimes, and then lawyers get involved, and then before you know it, there's finals restraining orders, and God knows, things go from zero to hero very quickly sometimes. And it's really, um, yeah, to calm all that down. And then, so maybe your first mediation, you don't do that much reflection work and whatever. You're just getting some things in place to get through it and to not have more conflict, to have some space to heal, to grieve, to get on your feet for the kids to know what they're doing and then you know you go okay now we're going to get our stuff together and is this actually working how do we all feel now we're not in the same house how are the kids going like what kind of treatment do we actually want to make you mentioned that each person gets an intake or you you mentioned that there's an intake session first is that with each party or just with yeah so you have a session with each side okay that's great so you get a great perspective depth with each person before you come into the room together love it um you were talking about that that tension at the beginning and so many of my clients come to me in fear right they're they're really in that space they're concerned that they'll never be able to recoup finances they'll never be able to get back on their feet again um yeah never be able to recover financially from a mortgage which uh, from a mortgage from a divorce which I completely identify with everybody feels that way, but there are mm-hmm. so many incredible success stories of, of getting yeah. through it, you know? Um, so in that space, I work with my clients on controlling their reactivity, you know, building the resilience, as I said, managing anxiety, working through their priorities. Um, you know, you just mentioned about, let's not try and res- resolve everything at once. Let's try and take oh. it step by step. Would you have any suggestions or, tools that you would recommend to somebody that might be going through that right now perhaps they're not in mediation but they're just fearful and worried that everything's about to turn to shit yes well so many things i can say i'm just trying to think go ahead we've got (laughs) go ahead well i I think the the one of the things to do is to get informed right and that sometimes it'd be difficult when you get emotional but if you so so often people come to me and they say we just need to sort out the house so we need and it's like well it doesn't quite work like that so to actually understand the system so to speak so you know what people need to do is get their assets and liabilities schedule together they need to figure out what they actually have and in some relationship also one person always did the finances and the other person has no idea what has gone, been gone on so 
they have a bit of a deeper, a steeper learning curve to go, okay, but it is essential to actually go and otherwise you make decisions with a blindfold on, right? That's so right. it's about getting all that information and then when you have all that together, so that's why I say put something interim in place to kind of so everyone knows what's happening, who's paying the bills right now, who's living where, just so things are ticking over and no one is stressing out that they can't afford stuff because that's sometimes... I mean, of course, there are situations where people where it, that is just happening and then we have to kind of, you know, put all the fires out. But let's just say that in a in a situation where everyone can just tick it over until they make the agreement, they make they work it out. So then that emotion, that fear can actually calm down. So that will be the first step to make those short-term agreements about who's paying the bills, who's paying the mortgage, how do we pay for the kids until we have an agreement. So then that fear can sort of – and then you can actually think a bit clearer – then you go and work out what your assets and liability schedule is. So you actually know what you're talking about. And then you do need to get legal advice. And people do get yeah, get scared definitely. about lawyers. But the thing is, you know, first of all, go to good ones. My a, a good sign of a good lawyer is they just give you multiple options. They say, this is what you can do, and this is what you can do, and this is what you can do, and not just trying to while you up. Um, you know, people can always ask me. I know lots of good lawyers, and you know, you don't want to go to one that's not helpful. Um, but to be able to find out what the range is. And then then you know kind of what, you know, a question to ask a lawyer is like, if this would go to court tomorrow, what would be a likely outcome? And it's not because you're going to court, but there's a couple of things you need to know when you negotiate. So, so for some people, it's a reality check because they have an idea of how financial separation should go. However, the court disagrees and fairly yes. or unfairly, that's the system that you're in. So there's no point in trying to fight for something in mediation or even when you're negotiating without a mediator when you know you're not going to get it in court and, you know, and then to say I'm walking away angry and all that. So it's just not strategically smart. Plus, if you go to court, it takes three years of your life and hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's not dollars. ideal. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then, but then, and then when you have all that information, you kind of have an understanding of what you, you know, so-called entitled to or whatever it might be, then to sit down and work out, and you mentioned it before, like, what are my priorities? So a lot of my clients want to move on. A lot of my clients want peace of mind. A lot of my clients have kids together, so they still want to be able to co-parent. So if you are going to drag each other through a horrible property process, then that is going to impact your relationship. And then, you know, what... Um, so, and what do you need as well? So, you know, do your homework. I often say to my clients, go and see with suburb. You kind of want to leave and see if that's possible. Like, what are you going to earn? Do your budget. So, when you actually get, and I know this might sound really overwhelming, but you can do one step at a time. And when you are really clear on what your budget is and what you're going to have, um, then you can make decisions in financial separation. Going, okay, well, I need this amount of cash because I. If, if you want me to live near the kids' school or whatever, not two hours' drive away in some whatever suburb, or these, you get a lot more clear on what you can and can't do. And, yeah. yeah, I think that's really helpful. And the reality of it is as well, separation often does change things and people, you know, walk away with less than what they had. And for some people it changes drastically what kind of budget they have. For some people it doesn't. But then it's also to deal with reality. And then when you get your own pot eye, from the financial separation, then you can start making the decisions about how you want to move forward with that and build yourself up. Yeah, that's one of my favourite parts of working with women is, okay, what does the future look like now? So, you know, I'm dealing with yeah. working with somebody at the moment who has is at the end of the settlement of things and she's decided she's ready to start imagining what life can look like. Yeah, it's that, amazing. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful time. It's a beautiful time to work with somebody. Um, 
you mentioned just a moment ago about clients wanting to move on. And I worry a little bit when there's that urgency, like, I just want it over. I just want to be done with it. I worry about decision-making capability when you're in that space of just just be finished. Just, you know, sign it off, take whatever you need. What yeah. um, what advice would you give to somebody if they're just like, I want it over? Is it yeah. is that well, the best place kids, to make decisions? Well, if you have kids, then the hard part is it never will be over. Never. So that's kind of to get your head around that. So you're always going to be, so that's one thing that I kind of dropped that bomb quite early. It's a bit yeah. harsh maybe. It's but, horrible. Well, but even when you have agreements in place, there'll always be something to negotiate about. There'll always be something to talk about. Life happens. So yeah. it's it's a journey. It's not like, doesn't mean that having agreements in place is not going to um, help. However, saying that it will be over is unrealistic. So I'm talking to clients about, you know, you're doing this now. And then obviously we talk about how you're going to communicate better and stuff like that to see if it can be better. With finances, that is a bit more finite because obviously that does, is it line in the sand? Um, the, what I say to people is, you know, you don't want to rush it. You don't want to drag it out either. So it is important to, you know, often I have to speed one client up and slow one client down because everyone yeah. has different ideas how this is going to go. Um, but you just want to do it properly. This is going to impact your entire future for both the kids and for finances. So it needs the time that it needs. You need to really think about it. Um, and you just don't want to look back in five years' time and go, God, what did I do there? Why so and, and they, yeah. Yeah. And I think um and I keep coming back to if you make those interim agreements, then you don't feel that pressure so much because then you know what's going on right now. And then you can free yourself up to go, and what are we doing next? And when you get that information, you will get clearer and clearer as you go. Um, and the other thing is to, because I noticed it again today in a mediation I had, people don't like talking about finances and they get extremely uncomfortable talking about money. Yeah, that's and, so interesting. That's so true. Yeah, yeah, and to get really comfortable also if you've never done it before, to get comfortable with asking what you need. And um and also when you negotiate about your finances, like all the numbers on that whiteboard, they are not just numbers. They are people's entire lives on a whiteboard, their hopes, their dreams, their efforts. Their... So it's also thinking about, you know, what is the person that you're negotiating with, what's important to them and what's important to me? Like the other day it was a financial mediation, but one of the clients just wanted to be acknowledged for something. And when we started the negotiation, he was saying it needs to be this amount of money and that, and, that, and then when I drilled down to it, he just wanted it to be acknowledged. That that's what he did. That he'd worked and so hard it. to create it or, yeah, whatever it was, yeah. Yeah, so in the end there was no money exchanged because of that. It was just an acknowledgement and the other person didn't know that or didn't see that or whatever, right, so that's part of my job. So often it's about acknowledging people's roles so you know one person might have stayed home with the kids and that was really important it's really valuable and for another person they might have brought in finances that's also really valuable and now you are separating all those things out so um the person that you know to have a really uh, this is not the case for a lot of people but let's just give an example you know let's just say one person earned three hundred thousand dollars a year and uh, the other person looked after the kids and they hadn't, yeah. didn't have a job for 20 years. So often there's this narrative about, you know, women clean men out or whatever. And I'm saying, no, this person gets to 
got to do their job because the other person stayed home and they get to keep that income. The other person is now coming from, you know, doing all that valuable work in the family and now they're going to have to get on their feet and they, you know, will never get that earning capacity because it's not possible. So, you know, so you made decisions as a couple and now you're going to have to untangle those and go, how can we both get out of here? And I think that's the mindset to have is how can we both get out of here so our children have two households that they can live in and they can sustain themselves. And then that's a very different mindset than coming in and going, I need what I need. Yeah. And I don't I don't want to be screwed over because that's how a lot of people yeah. feel. Um, but it's or about the awful position of I want to screw that person over. I want them yeah. to have nothing, which if there are children involved, that is an awful scenario too. You don't want them to see one parent succeeding and the other having absolutely nothing and destitute. No, and they have to live in both households. So then they have That's to very, um, so so it's about like changing your mindset over that, even though, and that is not always easy when you're hurting, right? Someone cheated no, on you. Definitely. If you're just really devastated or one thing that I hear a lot, and I totally get that too, is that people say, I don't even want this separation. And now I have to do all this and I have to move out. Are you for real? Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And I have to separate my finances and I have to not see my children. This is not my decision. So it's it's all that and it's all valid. That's the thing, right? There is nothing wrong with it. But in this in the process of separation, Absolutely. I guess you want you want to get the support like from whoever to get yourself centered. And then if it's about finances, I also say to my clients, I know this is the hardest thing I'm gonna ask of you today, but I need you to look at this commercially because I know it's all emotional. But you are about to make some decisions. Well, I can't really say it like that, but you know, it's it's I try to prevent people from making decisions because of their emotions and they're not often that smart. You know what I mean? Yeah. And not because they're not smart people, but just because they're run by their emotions and they need to step away from it and just look at, you know, these are the options and what will be from a commercial point of view the best decision. Susanna, how do you stay strong and protected? There's so much emotion going around. Obviously, you can't help but absorb some of that. So how do you protect yourself? Um, I exercise every day. Yeah. So that's something that's I'm really big on. Moving my body is kind of moving the energy through. So I exercise always early in the morning, but normally like today I have clients until about five and then I will go, a friend of mine's coming at quarter past five, we'll go for a walk in a bush. Beautiful. And then I leave it behind and then I can spend time with my family. Um, the other thing is if it's something really difficult, because some cases are really um, hard and emotional mm. and I have feelings too and I have children too and I'm a human being um, and some things that some things are just heart-wrenching like they really are and the stories and the um so I get help if I need uh, to so we, I can have people to talk to to say this is what I've dealt with today um and then some physical stuff you know jump in the pool have a shower get rid of the day um and that's why my corporate work comes in as well because when I facilitate training and stuff it's a very different job so when I coach and I train and I at the moment I'm training a group of mediators to set up their own business and mediation skills so I do mix it up for that reason because I think yeah, if I would do too. family mediation five days a week um I think uh, emotionally that would be a bit much <laughs> It is. It's a lot. I do all of the things that you do. <laughs> I exercise maybe not every day, five days a week, but I always yeah. um, try to make sure I connect with the earth at some point, whether it's just a barefoot yeah. <laughs> walk around my garden right. or get to the beach, put my feet in the sand, just yeah. to get out of this headspace. There's, there's so much 
time spent absorbing mm. other people's energy in this role that we need yeah. to be able to shake it off. I have a corporate job as well. It's completely different. Yeah, it's, it's a, it's a different refreshing. thing. And when yeah. I say I exercise every day, it doesn't mean I go to the gym every day. Actually, my physio has told me I can no longer do that, but it means I move every day, every morning. And yeah. just, you know, have a bit of sweat, a bit of movement. How did you get into me mediation? What's your background? Well, I did a law degree um, and I'm Dutch from origin. So um, I loved studying law, but I didn't really like the idea of being a lawyer. I don't know if that makes any sense. Um, Absolutely and I think, does, yeah. But I think in hindsight, if I would have had my time again, I, I loved doing it and I actually really enjoyed my degree, but uh, I probably would have studied psychology. Um, so then um, I travelled around Australia. I met my now husband and um, I did, we came back to the Netherlands and I did a counselling degree for a year as well. And I did a lot of coaching education. I did a lot of personal development since 2006 and about to jump in another course next week. So since then I've been doing a lot of work on myself and all those kind of coaching skills. So when I realised I couldn't uh, convert my law degree and I was already really I was not that keen anyway. I think the universe was like, well, that's not happening. I um, did, I was like, well, what would be my ideal thing? And mediation kind of really fitted the bill because there's a lot of counselling skills. It is really good to have an understanding of the law and drafting skills and all those kind of things, but we kind of do neither. We don't, we're not counsellors and we're not um, lawyers. And, um, yeah, so I just got myself, and because of my, the degrees I had, I could do all the education, so I just got myself educated. And then I got started door knocking because it was very hard for me to get a first job in WA because I had no WA education, no WA experience. No one wanted me. So I want to find out the first like, person that's told me that actually. I've only been in WA for two years and everything I do is I, I bought with me essentially from, from Singapore anyway. So yeah. but you know, when I speak to people, they're like, How how are you how are you managing to start a business here or how are you managing I'm like, well, it was a business I already had when I came here. Yeah, that's right. But I literally went door knocking on the terrace and I was like, so and wow. then I my first mediation job for the Department of Corrective Services. So I did victim offender mediation, which is a very different space. Wow. Um, and it's kind of evolved from there. So then I educated myself in family mediation and I worked for non-for-profits and lots of organisations to to learn the skills but also to understand Australian culture and to work with people. And, uh, and then at one point I got my own business and then it sort of evolved and now I teach mediation at law school and um, I train all, a lot of mediators in, in, in Australia. So it kind of evolved from from there on end. It, it, yeah. Um, yeah, it became bigger than Are you appointed by the court at any point or do people come to you privately? Mostly privately. I mean, the lawyers refer to me, counsellors refer to me, people find me online. Uh, the court will send them back to mediation. And I, I don't think I've ever been mentioned in a court, or maybe I have, I haven't seen it, but um, the court will tell them to go mediate and then they, they go, they come to me. So, but it's not that the court says you have to speak to, see you know, right. person. Well, okay. sometimes, I don't know if they, yeah, it might have been, but occasionally. In general, people come to me privately and they find me somehow. And I got Laura working with me now as well because I'm only one person. And okay. um, yeah, so that's really, yeah, it's really great. And I obviously make sure she's really great, but I'm always there in the background as well to help out if need be. So I love that you're, you have your practice in mediation, but you're also teaching others how mm. to be mediators. Tell me a little bit more about what that decision was. You just said they're all around Australia. So it's not just here in Western Australia. You're teaching yeah. others. Well, I think it started with, um, first of all, I started lecturing at um, Murdoch University and then I also did um, some stuff at ECU. So that was teaching law students because one of my um, 
passion, so to speak, is to change the way we do law. Um, and mm-hmm. to, so because I just think fighting, like the mindset of fighting for someone is, you know, is for me would be making sure they get an agreement and work things out and not go into the system because the system is broken on many, many levels. Um, but that's not how lawyers get trained. Um, so um, that's kind of how I started teaching and I really enjoyed that. And then at one point I started uh, teaching for the College of Law, the, the Vocational Diploma and Family Dispute Resolution. So I started teaching the students how to become, you know, a um, accredited family mediator because you have to yeah. get yourself uh, accredited with the Eternal General's offers and as a process and as training. So I'm I'm one of the trainers for the College of Law, so that's Australia-wide. Well, it used to be Perth, but then with COVID it became Australia-wide online. Excellent. And... Um, then I realized there was a gap. So those people get their certification after six months or nine months or whatever it is. And then they want to go out on their own, but I don't know how. And quite frankly, you know, there's nothing wrong with those courses, but obviously there's only so much you can do in that. And there's to be able to work with people that's a bit more involved and, you know, you do role plays, you do things, but everyone's a bit like, well, now what? I've, because I've been teaching those programs, I know exactly what's in it. And I also have a private practice, so I actually know exactly what the gap is. So I developed a program called the Mediation Practice Program where I train people in, you know, how to run a lawyer system mediation, how to deal with difficult clients, how to deal with domestic violence. And so all like um, it doesn't mean that none of this get discussed in uh, those other programs, but there's only so much time. And yes. how to do property, how to do property settlement, because it's a very different process that from parenting. So all those, they get all that, but I also teach them and, well, you know, have being a great mediator is amazing, but it doesn't mean you know how to run a business. So then it's all about how to run a mediation practice. What do you need to have? Okay. What do you need to have to set up? Like, so I kind Does of share. Does it become a peer network as well? What's that? Does it become a peer network as well? Yeah, well, they get so to know each other pretty well. Yes, yeah, yeah, that's the yeah. other thing. So then they can call each other and they have difficult sessions or in the meantime and say, hey, I'm dealing with this. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that's also the intention to create a bit of a community. Um, yeah. And it's been really fun. Like I've run it for the first time this year and um, they're loving it and they're getting great results. So in January we finish up and then they'll be, you know, at the moment they're doing their logos and their websites. And, you know, Amazing. Yeah, that's it's really so fun. And also, I guess it's so important for clients. For me, what's important for clients is you know, I can be a bit of a control freak in my own practice because I want people to get a really good service. But I've learned that if I want to make a difference, I just need to teach others how to do it because it's, um, you know, it's really important for people that they really, people need to be really held in this space and not judged and not, they feel so how nice. they feel and then so gently nice. be coached and, and try to help them to you know, get to the other side or at least move forward uh, one way or another. And I, and I think, um, yeah, I have a lot of empathy and, what do I say, respect for my clients. They, they share their stories with complete and utter strangers. They have very difficult conversations and they, yeah, they... And you're they in share. a very intimate environment with them, right? You are in Absolutely. the trenches as they're discussing the breakdown of a fundamental yeah. foundation in their lives. Yeah, it's a tough time to be... It's absolutely, yeah. So I really want to make sure as much as I can that they get to deal with lots of great practitioners around the country. So that's one of the other things that I'm committed to. Oh, that's fabulous. One of the things I love about the coaching community is peer coaching and even group coaching. I just think you learn so much from each other. That's why I was asking about the peer networking because, you know, in isolation they might be an excellent practitioner, but we can always learn. We can always be better at what we do. I'm a big believer in 
continual. Well, this morning we had um we do a Monday focus meeting where I get them all to focus on what they're doing that week. And mm-hmm. um, one of them was a bit insecure about something, and then someone else popped up and like, "You're amazing! Like, you don't need any of this. You can just do it." And I was like, "Oh, I just my work is great done community. Awesome." <laughs> Um, another question, a practical question is what, it's probably a bit like the question I asked earlier on what percentage of your clients will be like, there's no real answer to this, but what's an average length of time for how long does a mediation take in reality? Mm-hmm. Anywhere from you come, if you come to the meeting with pre-discussed ideas, I'm sure it could be quite quick, but really how long would a mediation realistically last, do you think? I think I'm quite efficient because my clients don't hang around me for that long, to be honest. So we're doing one intake each and it depends, of course, how quickly people book in. And sometimes that in itself can be a bit of a battle if people don't really want to engage. And, and yeah, but yeah, so that can be a bit of, that can be a, so that's why at one point I go, nah, if you don't engage oh. by this time, then, you know, you're not engaging. So that's always a bit tricky. But let's just say everyone is booked in their intakes in a couple of weeks time. And then we do the mediation, depending also on what people need to do. If they're not ready, um, and they're both happy to go and because people need to get their advice and sort some stuff out with kids. It's yeah. a bit easier. Normally, people are um, ready for that quite quickly. But finances sometimes we do need to, um, you know, have them do the homework. Otherwise, it's a bit of a waste of time and money. Um, but then with parenting, my mediations without lawyers are three hours, and with lawyers, it's always half a day or full day. So if we do it with lawyers, often we spend an entire day just nutting stuff out, and then it gets typed up and signed at the end of the Incredible. day. Incredible. There has but, um, to be presumably breaks apart, come back together. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of in and out yeah, of rooms. And sometimes at one point people, sense. that's the other thing with mediation, you're not even always in the same room. Sometimes I go in between. There can be reasons yeah. for what people cannot be in the same room. Um, but if it's a three-hour session with parenting, I think you get a long way. So often my Amazing. clients do it all out in that time or they do part of it and come back, um, do something and they go and test it out and come back a couple of months later to see how it worked or um, I don't, some clients take two sessions, but most of my clients, I would say, uh, it's one session for parenting, which I think Incredible. is a bit rare. I think most, 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 anyway. And then for finances, it's similar. Like it's a half a day with lawyers or a full day with lawyers. And then uh, I do three hours. Sometimes we need two sessions, but normally not more than that. Like I hardly ever have more than two sessions. And again, often in one session, if you do the right preparation, that in three hours of conversation, you can get the right preparation and the right mindset, presumably those right behaviors. Yeah, but and, and some that's right. But also, sometimes it might figure out everyone knows after those three hours they're not going to agree. Yes, and that can also be an outcome, or that they partly agree. Because one of the things you can do in mediation, it doesn't even mean it's not successful, is that you narrow the issue down. Let's just say clients agree on everything; they have an agenda, you have an agenda, and they agree on six points, but not the seventh. Well, then if they only have to go to court over that little bit, it's not that long and it's not that. And I always say to them, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's just one point you really cannot agree upon. You have a different view on it, but it doesn't mean you're bad people. Um, and I actually often find that when people go away and think about it, often they get settled anyway. But yeah, otherwise they yeah. go. So so it doesn't, it shouldn't take forever. Sometimes yeah. it's more difficult to get the actual mediation planned and have that sort of um, happen because people are working away and there's holidays and there's stuff and and the discovery piece. Yeah. yeah. Um, would it be fair to say best case scenario is avoiding court? Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, like I, I um, you know, I think court is an absolute last resort. Um, and I actually did some research this year, I think it was, and I interviewed a lot of. I put some things out and I asked people to to do have conversations with me. 
And I interviewed everyone from being just separated for people who were $250,000 in court proceedings. And I kind of got the the general, because I actually put all the answers in a spreadsheet and I had to look at what, you know, was there a common theme? And one of the things that people who were in court and doing all that, they were all like, if we would have done something, if someone would have helped us in the early days, I don't think we ever would have ended up here or I don't know how we ended up here. And I wish we didn't. I didn't speak to anyone who was in court. It was like, well, this is fantastic. It's emotionally and financially draining. And the other thing what happens is you give your entire life out. You know, you say to a magistrate who who try and do their best they can, but they get the information that they get. If they don't get some information, they don't get it. And they get to make a decision about your family. And you might walk out with something that no one likes. So I'm always saying you guys are the expert on your family. You're the expert on your kids. You're the expert on your finances. So you know best how to make this work. And courts should be, it is useful for some people. The last resort. Yeah. Yeah, And for some people it's necessary. Like I'm not against it. I had clients that I have had said to some of my clients, you need to go to court. This is not going to settle. And and for me to say that people know I'm fairly serious because I'm always trying to keep them out of there. But I have had clients that the other party just did not want to give them access to their kids. There was no way. There was no up and down. We're trying to resolve 20,000 concerns. And every time there was a new concern, so at one point I go, do you want him or her to have access? And they were like, no, not really. So then you know what you're dealing with and then you need to go and have someone make them do it, you know. So sometimes you just have to. Um, but even if you go to court, this is something I want to let people know, you can always come back to mediation. I've had so many people that gone to court, they couldn't agree, and then before trial, so I do a lot of late intervention, we call it, they right. come back because they're realising what court means because I yeah. think also people watch a lot of TV and they don't know what it actually means and they think they're going to get validated by the magistrate or anything like that. None of that has going to happen. So. And then we mediate again. And so as soon as you finish and you make an agreement, you just let the court know and they go, great, see you later. Brilliant, happy, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> happy you've done the work. That's right. right. So yeah, you can always do it. Yeah, staying out of the court system so important for all of the reasons you mentioned. You know, oh, the and it's so lengthy. Energy, and it's, the yeah. time, the cost. Yeah, And I always make a joke to my clients and say you can all pay your, for your own children's private school fees or you pay for your lawyer's children's private school fees which one is it going to be <laughs> that's excellent that's so true i um my divorce happened in singapore so it was an international divorce which is tricky in all kinds of ways yes and that's why i was asking you about you know court appointed mediation because there you're given somebody and you have to go and mm-hmm. see that somebody whether uh-huh. you like it or not um but you don't get to choose necessarily who you get who you see. You just turn up and they're there. Um, but because of the expense of things, I ended up uh, representing myself. I wrote mm. my own documents. I had to, you know, file. I had to learn the international law system because I couldn't pay my lawyer's private school fees. This wasn't going to happen. No, and, 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 then it's even, and then you're lucky that also it's not maybe lucky to do it in that moment, but that you could and could understand it, right? Because there's so many people who just did that from a different country or English oh, or the first language and they can't even understand. But self-representing actually happens a lot. There's more than more than 50% of people self-represent in the family court nowadays in, in Australia. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, look, I would have much preferred to spend that time educating myself in anything else like no, literally anything right? else yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah. But, so, but, what, know, but what I'm trying to say is that I'm not against court or against lawyers I actually love no. working with lawyers when they when lawyers have the right intention and you know a lot of them who work in family law do because otherwise they would 
to commercial or something else. Uh, not everyone, because not I think no, I think everyone has the right intention. I think some people just have the mindset, like I said before, that they think fighting for a client looks a little bit different than what I think fighting for a client looks like. Yeah. Um, because I've seen some atrocious stuff happens in mediation, and it just blows my mind. And I'm just like, you just you just blew up this entire session. The clients were almost there, and because of you, they are not going to court. Fantastic. But in general, lawyers are really great. But they are. But I think what I want clients to understand, or people who are listening to understand, is that. You are the boss of your life. So the lawyer is there to give you legal advice. It doesn't mean you have to follow it That's or right. that you have information. And you can say, well, I get that, but i rather do this as long as it's within the realm of what the court would accept, of course. Um, and also with mediators, I always say to all my clients, we all go away. We walk out of this room. You and live we go with to this. our own life, to our own problems, but you guys are going to be stuck with whatever you're agreeing on. You're going yeah. to be stuck with whatever. It's all easy for us to say what you need to be doing. So, and I think some people at one point hand everything over to it and say, well, what do you think I should do? And and as a mediator, I can't do it anyway. But, you know, and I need to talk to my lawyer to make sure I can make a decision. And then I'm sometimes wondering, I'm like, well, the legal advice is important, but just think about what's important to you. What's, you know, and, and, lead, and let the fair thing go because there is no fair. Fair is a perception. Absolutely. Fair from whose point of view? Yeah. And it's so just a matter of going what is workable and what's going to what can i live with and you know just get you know, get on with it <laughs> yeah yeah let's tie a ribbon in that like we're done and start building that beautiful life that we were talking That's right. about yeah. yeah start with where you are at and and move up so Brilliant, Lusana. Thank you so much. It's been excellent having you on this podcast. I've so enjoyed your chat, our chat, and all of your advice. Um, I love what you're saying about reflective capacity and couldn't we all just work on that better even if oh, we're not absolutely. in mediation? Yeah. yeah. I think that's yeah. going to be my new I, mantra. Just ask, just ask my husband sometimes. So she's going to reflective <laughs> capacity, surely. <laughs> He must love that. I bet he loves that. <laughs> yes, absolutely. He's like, okay, you're the conflict resolution expert. Take some responsibility. <laughs> so, Lisanna, how can people find you? I'll put it in the show notes, but in case people are listening and um, want to take yeah. their own notes. Well, I got uh, just livemediation.com.au is my website. I'm on Facebook and Instagram. On Instagram, um, what is it? Uh, Lisanna Eriks underscore conflict expert. And I have a podcast, Conversations to Cut the Conflict, as well. There's a lot of, I put, so there's so much information there on how to resolve conflict, how to negotiate, how, like, just have a look. There's a lot there. Um, so there's a lot of free content for people to have a look at. And at link, LinkedIn as well. So, yeah, my name is pretty rare. So type it in and you'll find me. Lisanna Eriks. Yeah. Beautiful. Lisanna, thank you so much. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. I hope you took something of value out of this episode. I'm your host, Becca Maxwell, and you can find me on the web at dodivorceright.com or on Instagram at dodivorceright. I look forward to connecting with you there.